Have you ever felt like someone was so intent on telling you about compassion that they forgot to demonstrate it in the process? Welcome to Episode 9 of What We Believe and Why with pastor, author, and teacher, Dr. George Byron Koch. During our last session, we talked about the tricky matter of living with grace amongst those who don't believe the things we believe. And ironically, the forgiveness that we've received is sometimes forgotten while we deal with those around us. Let's jump back into this important discussion. Here's Pastor George. As we begin again, I want to remind us that being sanctified is not forcing correct behavior on others, particularly on believers. When we are living with unbelievers and really attempting to love them into the kingdom of God, the important thing, first of all, is that love. There are times when tough talk is necessary, and those times will come, but they will be received much better from someone who is a trusted friend with whom a relationship is developed than from someone who just wants to let you know that you are wrong. I've seen people brought to tears by the forgiveness of God, who came to the altar in surrender and who shared there the struggles that had brought them to the church and to the altar. Instead of being welcomed, they were told how terrible their sin was. The accuser had his theology straight, but lacked love. The point of the gospel is forgiveness, not condemnation. It is out of the soil of forgiveness that holiness grows, not out of the venom of condemnation. I have heard Christians denouncing both unbelievers and each other, sometimes by murmuring, sometimes face to face, using sarcasm and innuendo and clever shaming to point up a real or perceived sin, what Paul calls in Galatians 5.15, biting and devouring one another. We need to be vigilant lest we be sucked in by this when it arises. We can speak very plainly with others, but only if we do so in love and lovingly. Jesus said people should know we are his followers because of the way we love each other. Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That was in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. The way we often feel with unbelievers, or not yet believers, is that we get to the grow in holiness before the God forgives Worse, the grow in holiness isn't even really that. It is instead a religious spirit that demands certain behavior or dress or speech to even allow someone to be among us, often long before anyone has even shared the good news with them. And when someone has accepted Jesus as Savior, we often begin on our version of what it means to be sanctified on our list of what that person should change. 
rather than the Holy Spirit's list, which probably will be quite different. This is not to suggest that there are no rules, that everything should be ignored, or that any conduct is acceptable because we all want to be nice. Rather, it is to say that even when facing serious concerns, we need to approach people the way Jesus did. That's what he wants us to learn how to do, after all, in order to be his disciples. We learn by use and practice. That's what the word disciple means, to learn by use and practice. How to love God, love neighbors, love even enemies, and surely to love into his kingdom those who do not yet know him. How do we live with unbelievers? By loving them, loving them, loving them, and sharing the astonishing news that God extends his forgiveness to all of us freely. What we did not deserve and could not earn is given without cost. Jesus did so. Jesus said so. Say so. This surely is loving those who do not yet believe. Now I'd like to turn to prayer. We'll look at this in several different ways, and we'll begin by considering images and icons. When I first came to Resurrection Anglican Church to be interviewed for the position of pastor, the search committee met with me down in the basement and had set aside a certain amount of time for the interview. It didn't take as long as anticipated. When we finished, the committee members looked at the clock and said, oh, we have a little extra time. Let's go upstairs and pray. I was amazed that the first thing they would do when they had extra time was go and pray. I don't know about you, but in my experience, that's a pretty odd thing in a church. Oh, we pray at formal times and during meetings set aside for prayer, maybe even spontaneously if someone is in need. But simply to pray because we have a little extra time? Very unusual. We do other things when we have extra time. Talk, eat, watch TV, read a book, take a walk. But pray? Downright odd. Yet the Apostle Paul exhorted us to pray without ceasing. And Scripture is full of examples of prayer and the call to pray. I suspect we don't entirely get prayer. I think there are aspects of prayer, even fundamental ones, which we don't usually incorporate in our lives, and that there are also other words and actions that we confuse with prayer or substitute for prayer. So let's take a serious look at prayer, what it is and what it isn't. It's a big topic, and it's really important. It's a key part of the love relationship we have with God, of life in Christ, of covenant. It is central to how we are intimate with him. It is our love language. We'll spend three full chapters on it and still be just at the beginning. Of all the subjects covered in theology, prayer is one of the most written about. 
If you go through scripture and tally all the verses devoted to prayer, its nature, character, and purpose, it's nearly unending. There is so much scripture on prayer and so much written about it in theology, one hardly knows where to start. But we'll try to tackle the most common issues. Let me warn in advance that some of this may be off-putting. Parts of it may make you squirm or even get angry or worried. Where is he going with this? The reason is that I will attempt to unveil how the church has prayed across history and denominations, and some of this will be foreign, unfamiliar, and perhaps even repugnant to you. My effort here is not to promote everything I describe or explain, but rather to give each of us an understanding of why other Christians pray in certain ways. It's likely that when they listen here about how you pray, they will have similar reactions. Though this is an imperfect analogy, it is similar to watching courting and marriage customs across cultures. What seems perfectly normal to us looks really odd and icky to people from vastly different cultures, and vice versa. We may prefer our own, but that doesn't necessarily make the others wrong. On the other hand, there may well be things in the way they do courting and marriage that need to be seriously critiqued or corrected. Now, I won't detail these here. You can probably guess at many of them. Equally, there may be common elements of the way our culture does courting and marriage that need to be seriously critiqued or corrected. Just so with prayer. So I want to take you on a journey through the ways Christians pray. This may seem a bit granular at this point, but we will return to a more comprehensive view at the end. So stick with me. Some of what follows may well be unfamiliar or even seem wrong to you, and it may be wrong. But for now, just travel with me as I explain how prayer is done and why people do it the way they do across church traditions and history. Note, too, that we may have some ideas or prejudices about the way others pray, which misunderstand or caricature what they do, and why they do it. We'll try to uncover these and see things clearly. At the least, this should be an interesting journey of discovery. And here's a good place to start. Broadly speaking, Christians in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions use common prayer. That is, they pray liturgically and simultaneously. They recite prayers together aloud that were written by someone else, often from a prayer book or a worship booklet. To them, this seems normal, communal, holy, and God-honoring. Many such folks look at modern, spontaneous, Protestant prayer and feel that it is casual, lacks awe, and is out of order. So we'll look at both of these more deeply. Thanks, George. We'll talk more about the forms of prayer when What We Believe and Why with Pastor George Koch continues. We hope you'll stay with us.